You're listening to the ESO Network, your station for all things geek. The Epsilon 3 is a dream given form. It's a home away from home for three guys to watch a 90s sci-fi classic TV show. Three guys with microphones over 3,249 miles apart, all alone in the night. The year is 2262. The place, Babylon 5. The podcast, The Epsilon 3. On the ESO Network. Hey, everybody. Welcome to this week's episode of Monster Attack, the podcast dedicated to old monster movies. Well, we've been teasing you for the last couple of weeks about this episode, number 399, getting ready to lead into our 400th episode. And we said we were going to be visiting an old friend uh, in this show. And of course, from the graphic that advertises the show, you know, I'm talking about our old friend, the giant ants from them. We last talked about this movie. Let's see, it's been more than 300 episodes. I think it was 304 episodes ago. It was episode 95 in season two of Monster Attack. So it's been a while since we've talked about this. And uh, even though I probably I may repeat some stuff that I, I said in that show, because I don't remember everything that I talked about in that uh, in that particular broadcast, been too long ago. It's been almost uh, seven years now. Uh, we're going to talk about some new information that we recently learned about them, but we're going to keep you in suspense on that one. But for those of you that are fans of this film, you're going to like what you're going to hear. Now, this film was probably the first, and I think it was. I cannot think of another film that came out before it that featured big bugs. This one really set the table. I got so excited about this movie because my mom and dad loved this film. And when they got me into monster movies back around 1962, all they could talk about was the movie about the big ants called Them. They had just been married when it came out. Mom actually was pregnant with me at that time. And they saw it in the drive-in theater. They, uh, Dad was a big, big fan of drive-ins. So was Mom. And again, you know, folks, as a kid growing up, I loved going to the drive-ins. We saw some great films. And for families, you could take the whole family to the drive-in and it wouldn't cost you hardly anything, even with the concessions. So it was a great family activity. I can remember so many times, you know, we had to change, you know, when I was real little, had to change into our PJs. And uh, we, we uh, dad always had a uh, station wagon. The company he worked for always gave him a station wagon. We'd load everything up into the station wagon and we, we would bring some of our snacks and things like that. And, you know, my sister and I, this was before my youngest sister was born. Uh, you know, we would, we would go to the, uh, go to the drive-in and, and see a double or triple play. And it was a big family affair. It was great. And I miss that. And I, I know there's still drive-in theaters around. There's one here in Atlanta, but, uh, 
I, I wish they would get back into popularity again because it was it, it was more the event than just going to a drive-in theater. So I had that riveted in my mind. I had to see this movie about the big ants. Now, one thing that is making this episode very, very special, the fact that we're doing the film Them, and one of the reasons I'm doing Them for this is because this film, this this episode, I should say, is being released the day before what would have been my parents' 70th wedding anniversary. They were married on February 20th of 1954. So I am dedicating this particular episode to mom and dad, to the memory of my mom and dad, who gave me the greatest gift in the world, and that was the gift of monster movies. Changed my life and made my life so much better. They became my friends, you know, my love. (laughs) I'll tell you what, folks, I don't know where my life would have gone if it had not been for monster movies. People can, you know, get on them all they want. This particular one is really good. Not only was it the first one to introduce big bugs and big bugs as a result of, oh, yes, this is 1954, radiation. Oh, my goodness. Because these bugs appeared near White Sands where all the testing went on, where the first atomic bomb was exploded and where other tests happened. And that becomes a factor in the movie. So it sets the table for what would happen in a lot of 1950s movies that we've talked about, all the big bug films. Folks, I think with this being the first, it's still the best big bug film of this time period. I really think it it, it is still set the bar so high that, you know, there are a couple that got close that did pretty well, but this one was, it maybe, maybe I feel that way because it was the first one I saw. And it was one of those rare movies that received such a huge buildup from my mom and dad about how good it was and how much I was going to love it and all that. And it held up. It satisfied my expectations. So many times as a kid growing up, we would look forward for, to a, a, uh, you know, a highly popular monster movie that the kids in the neighborhood, you know, might have seen before me and, and talking about it and couldn't wait to see it. And then I'd be a little disappointed. I would like them all, but you know, I might be a little disappointed. Say, well, you know, Okay, yeah, you know, I I wish it could have been a little better. But this one, I don't think there was anything they could do to make it any better. Directed by Gordon Douglas, who has an interesting background. And I'm going to apologize again to Gordon Douglas, because on three different occasions of Monster Attack, and I've been caught on all of them. Thank you, listeners, for catching me when I make a mistake. No, I, I really do appreciate that. Where I mistakenly called this film a Jack Arnold film, because it was so much like Jack Arnold's films. But now I'm beginning to wonder if Jack Arnold didn't get some pointers from Gordon Douglas, because he did it first. Gordon Douglas has an interesting background. He was one of the most veteran directors of Warner Brothers, but he wasn't known for doing feature films. His main thrust in his career at this time was that he did a lot of shorts, specifically the R Gang comedies. Remember those? Little Rascals? He did a ton of those, which is good because he has a chance to work with a young child in this. We're going to talk about her in just a second because I was so impressed with the performance she gave in this movie. And it shows. I think it shows in the scenes where you see the little girl. And Gordon definitely had some experience with that. But he was a talented filmmaker. And he brings a 
sort of a, a semi-documentary approach to this movie that really helps it out a lot because everybody plays it straight in this, you know, and, and you're always given that challenge with any kind of a monster movie that has sort of a, you know, out of this world type creature that is threatening you, you know, because it can be very easy to cross the line and make it ridiculous, but he does a great job. Uh, he does a great job with this script. And, and again, kudos uh, to the folks that wrote this because, uh, you know, the scripting on this is excellent. It is excellent. It, it, it goes at a very, very good pace. And, uh, you know, let, let me give credit where credit is due right now to uh, Ted Sherdeman and Russell Hughes. Russell Hughes actually did the adaptation of a story that uh, was uh, come up with by George Worthing Yates. These are the guys who put the story all together. And then Gordon Douglas takes it, does a magnificent job with it, really does a magnificent job with it. And this movie flows. It really flows well. Moves. There's never a dull moment. And I don't think there's ever a moment where you're really dissatisfied with what's going on. Very, very good cast on that. And let's let's talk a little bit about the cast of this movie. Because a lot of veterans in this and a lot of people who would end up becoming very, very popular actors. Our headliner is James Whitmore. J James Whitmore was just getting started in his career. I mean, known for so many, uh, so many things. I mean, uh, he won a, he won a Golden Globe. He won a Grammy Award, uh, a Primetime Emmy Awards, Theater World Awards, Tony Awards, two Academy Award nominations. Growing up, there weren't many places that I could look where I didn't see James Whitmore. And he became one of my favorite character actors of this time period. Favorite character actor of mine growing up as a kid. And well into my adult years, college and adult years. I mean, he had a long, long prolific career that extended into the 80s. And he's perfect for this. He plays Sergeant Ben Peterson. He's a state patrolman who gets this thing all started. And, and again, when we get into the timeline, we'll get more into detail on that. Another beloved character actor who's in this and is a lot of times mistaken for his cousin. <laughs> might think this was Cecil Calloway because we saw Cecil Calloway from another, you know, big dinosaur type film that came out around this time as well. But this is Edmund Gwen, who plays Dr. Harold Medford, will always be known as Santa Claus in Miracle on 34th Street. Yeah, but he and Cecil Calloway, actually Cecil Calloway was offered this role and turned it down and says, hey, you ought to try Edmund Gwen. I think he'd be perfect for this. <laughs> He's my cousin. And he does a great job, just does a terrific job, almost steals the movie in some some spots. But he provides a little bit of comic relief that you really need because this is a very, very intense film. And I think in 1954, I think it was probably very frightening to a lot of people, uh, certainly for kids. Now, you know, again, parents, I think your kids are safe watching this one. I think they've seen far, far worse in cartoons. But uh, it's an intense little film when you think about some of the issues that they deal with. Now, Joan Weldon, who plays our female lead, and she, she's almost the only female you see in this. You'll see a couple of uh, sort of uh, featured extra characters in this. But for the most part, she is the, the only main female character in this. Plays Harold Medford's uh, daughter, Dr. Pat Medford. Both of them work for the Department of Agriculture in this uh, movie. And uh, they're the ones that sort of solve the problem because they're trying to figure out 
you've got you've got Ben Peterson and then the uh, military trying to figure out what's causing all of this uh, all of these murders and destruction going on in the desert. And the Medfords are the ones that sort of figure it all out. James Arness, who's making an early appearance in this, and of course, you know, <laughs> Matt Dillon, Gunsmoke. Five decades he was on our television screens from 1955 to 1975 uh, and, and then came back in 1987 to return to Dodge, uh, made for TV film, a little follow up to a gun smoke. But we would see James Arness in, in several movies, but one in particular where you might not recognize him, even though he's real tall in the movie. And that is the thing from another world. I gave it a dramatic pause there. Did you like that? He plays the monster, the carrot guy, as he's <laughs> one of his first. I think it was actually his first film role. But he plays an FBI agent in this, Robert Graham, who's, who's brought in by the federal government to uh, to follow up on this investigation to figure out just what the heck is going on here, because it's so bizarre what's happening. Now we see another popular character actor that I saw in a lot of. A lot of films, a lot of horror films, and uh, and a lot of television shows. Onslow Stevens, and you will always recognize Onslow Stevens by his speaking voice. He has a very unique delivery and a very unique sounding voice. He was with us until 1977. He was actually born in Great Britain. You wouldn't know it to see him in a lot of the American movies uh, that you saw him in, uh, because he you know he, he he does American very very well. Some some of the movies you might have seen Onslow in was uh, The Family Secret, The San Francisco Story, The Charge at Feather River. He was in a lot of westerns. They rode west, of course, them he made around this time, New York Confidential, Tribute to a Bad Man, Ten Commandments. He played Lugol in that. You might remember that because that was on every single year. Party Crashers and others. His last film was The Couch. Uh, where he played a psychiatrist. That was in 1962, just before uh, he retired from acting. He had a very lengthy illness uh, that uh, he suffered from uh, leading up to his death in 1977 at the age of 74. But again, another staple, another staple. He's the kind of guy that you'd see him in a movie and you knew he was going to deliver a, a good performance. He plays General O'Brien. He's the He's the military guy sort of overseeing this investigation. Sean McClory is another interesting one. He plays uh, Major Kibbe. And uh, Sean McClory, Irish actor, did a lot. Came over here very early on in his career. Did a lot of film and television. And, uh, you know, and he kept his Irish accent all throughout. So it didn't hurt his career here in the United States. And uh, more than 100 films and television series that he appeared in. So a very prolific actor. And another one, you know, when you'd see him, it's like, okay, yeah, this is going to be all right. I like this guy. He's he's pretty good. Uh, I want to mention just a couple of other people that, that are making um, making their debuts in this. One in particular who has an early scene in the beginning, William Shallert. We've talked about William Shallert a lot. And, of course, uh, William comes back in the movie Matinee uh, with the movie within a movie that sort of spoofs this one, uh, where his, he's, he's the dentist who is treating the guy who turns into the giant ant. <laughs> Joe Dante's way of paying homage to, uh, to them. Uh, but again, you know, William Scheller, who played the father of Patty Duke, I'll always re remember that on, on the Patty Duke show, but he was in so many other things. He, he appeared on, on the Wild Wild West. 
for uh, for part of a season when uh, Ross Martin was ill and and they had to substitute for him here and there. Uh, and he would just show up all over the place. Very, very likable guy that we lost just a few years ago. And and I still I still think probably one of the most likable character actors in Hollywood during this time period. Also, we're going to see Fess Parker, who plays a character by the name of Alan Crotty. Alan is a guy who has is he's flying a plane and he sees some giant ants. Everybody thinks he's crazy because he he, he cracks up his, his plane and uh, tells everybody, you know, there's these giant ants flying around, or they're flying saucers that look like giant ants. Again, we'll talk more about that in the in the uh, uh, timeline here. But Fess Parker, this is before anybody knew who he was. And ironically, James Arness was being recruited by Disney Studios to do Davy Crockett. That's the guy that they they wanted. So they were watching them, and all of a sudden, Fess Parker comes on, a very small role. But a very memorable one. And again, one, he does something very similar to, um, to what Evan Gwen does. He provides a little bit of, um, a little bit of comic relief in this because he, he, he's sort of a slapstick. Well, now I won't say slapstick character, but he's, he's just a fun character. And, and Disney saw Fess Parker and said, wait a minute. This is the guy we want. And of course, the rest is history. Fess Parker, Parker goes on and does the Davy Crockett series for Walt Disney. And what other guy who's going to show up in this and they're going to do a double take? Say, wait a minute. Is that who I think it is? Because it's such an, un, he's such an unmistakable actor. Yes, Mr. Spock makes his film debut in this movie playing a, um, playing a soldier who's reading a, a story off the, uh, off the teletype about a strange occurrence in Texas, which leads James Whitmore and his investigating team uh, down there to, as they're trying to track down the uh, uh, the big ants. And again, in the timeline, we'll tell you why they're chasing these ants down. It's an uncredited part. So, I mean, as a kid, uh, I saw this before Star Trek. So I didn't know who Leonard Nimoy was. But it wasn't until I got into, I guess it was maybe in my high school years, after I became a Trekker, and watched them again and hadn't seen it in a while. Because again, folks, these are the days where you didn't have VHS or DVDs. Uh, you know, and you didn't, you, you know, the only stations that were showing movies like this were like the monster movie matinee guys and so it'd been a while since i'd seen them and all of a sudden i said wait a minute that's leonard nemo i didn't know he was in this movie <laughs> and you're going to see a, a number of other people like that let me read you a list of some people who include in small parts that were uncredited i mean again we had nimoy and william Shallard. you had john bernardino and if you're a fan of the uh Soap opera General Hospital. John Bernardino was a, a, a longtime regular in that uh, soap opera. Willis Boucher, Booth Coleman, Richard Deacon. Remember Richard Deacon? Yeah, a longtime uh, cast member of the Dick Van Dyke Show. Lawrence Dobkin and Doran. Douglas Spencer. Dub Taylor, another one that was a long time down the road. I guess I was almost in college when I saw a couple of contemporary films with Dub Taylor in it, and he, and he had another res- he had a resurgence in the 80s. And I went back and was like, wait a minute, he was in them. That's right. Dorothy Green, Harry Wilson, Jan Merlin, and Walter Coy. All people that are recognizable from 50s television that we saw on all kinds of TV shows, they show up in this. So this is this has got a fun cast, but mo- mainly this uh, this uh, movie is going to center around just those main ones 
that I gave you here. Now, the film itself, how the film gets produced, has got sort of an interesting story to it. I don't think I mentioned this when I talked about it before. Warner Brothers, you know, had the rights to the to the to the story. They were going to start shooting in the fall of 1953. Originally, this film was going to be in 3D and it was going to be in color. And I think I did mention that the, the last time I talked about them. You can tell from the opening credits there may have been a 3D influence there because the the uh, the credits the the actual the title is in red and blue. It jumps right out at you from the screen, so you're like, "Wow, yeah, that's almost like a 3D movie." Well, they uh, they did some some test shots in color and 3D. They liked them. They did some shots with the ants, and the ants were going to be sort of a purplish uh, red color. They liked that. But when it came time to shoot the uh, the 3D test, the camera that they were going to use, the 3D camera they're going to use, malfunctioned, and they couldn't get any shots. So Warner decided, okay, okay, we're going to drop the color, we're going to drop the 3D, and we're going to do the production in black and white widescreen. They thought maybe they could make it sort of like they did, you know, in the format The Beast uh, from 20,000 Fathoms. But they never made it in the widescreen, so this is in in a traditional you know, a traditional four by three uh, ratio. And, uh, you know, because they uh, they couldn't adapt the shooting script to a widescreen approach because it had already been adapted for the 3D film. So they had to opt back to that. Well, they were just about ready to give up. They tried a couple of their uh, other experiments with color that they didn't like. All you know, Things were just not going the way that they wanted with this. And so they, they sort of let it out that maybe they're going to drop the project and Paramount jumped all over it and, uh, got, got with the, uh, the people who are going to shoot it and says, Hey, we might be interested in that. Yeah. We'd sort of like to get into the monster movie business. And then when Warner's found out about it, I was like, Oh, no, 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 no. We're going to do it. We're going to do it. But was it a much, much smaller budget? And luckily Gordon Douglas does this in sort of a semi documentary uh, way. Uh, so that uh, it worked with a smaller budget. It really did. It's a very, very efficient film. Some of the other issues they had to deal with is that James Whitmore was a lot shorter than uh, James Arness. Now, when it came to jo- Joan Weldon, they you know, they thought, okay, a woman and, and, and a man with a woman being very much a lot shorter than the man wouldn't be a big deal, but it, it would be a man on a man. So, uh, so James Whitmore wore lifts. <laughs> Now, it's not very noticeable, which is good. They do a good job of shooting him in such a way that uh, it's not obvious that he's wearing lifts or whatever. You you would never know. Uh, and a lot of people, you know, down the road would probably be surprised at how short James Whitmore was. Uh, he's, he was about my height, you know, five, six, five, seven. So they finally get they finally get shooting, and away we go. This film, when it opened up in June of 1954, was a hit. June 16th, 1954, it had a, a limited release in New York. And then two days later, full USA release. And it was a hit. First week's uh, box office was $2.2 million. And it just went on, and it still continues to make money now. If you want to watch this movie right now, it is available on Amazon Prime, but you're going to have to pay $3.99 for it. So it's still making money, folks. Uh, there are different Blu-rays that it's available in and DVDs. Of course, I had the VHS when it first came out. It's one of the first ones I bought. I loved this film and I wanted to be able to watch it anytime I could. Just an incredible movie. 
So let's talk about some of the memorable scenes from the film then. It opens up in the desert. You've got James Whitmore and his partner. They're, they're state patrolmen. There is a, a, a report of someone walking out in the desert, maybe someone who's lost, and they come on, uh, and they've got a, a, a plane flying over also trying to, uh, trying to find it. And, and, he, and the, uh, the pilot says, hey, I found something. It's a little girl. There's a little girl walking in the desert, and he circles around until they can. He says it's about you know about two miles from where you're at, and they they come up on her. And James Whitmore, you're running up, and this girl is just she's holding a little doll. She's dressed in pajamas and a bathrobe, and just just walking like a robot through the desert. Great, great performance by this little girl. Who we're going to spend some time with in just a second here. Finds her and he realizes she's in shock. You know, just the thing where her eyes are just glazed over. He, he passes his hands in front of her eyes. They don't move. She doesn't respond to anything he says. So he picks her up, puts her in the car. They call it in, and they're told about um, a, a car and a trailer, a camping trailer, that a few miles up the road, and maybe she's got something to do with that. And they're sent off to investigate that. They get there, and they find this trailer absolutely trashed. But the interesting thing about it is it wasn't like something broke into the trailer. As James Whitmore said, this trailer, trailer was blown out, but there's no sign of an explosion. There's money all over the trailer. So, it, you know, they, they can't figure out why this is not a robbery. And they find sugar cubes scattered all over the all over the property there. So nothing's making much sense. But they find this strange looking footprint. It doesn't look like any animal. You know, at first they think maybe a coyote or something, but it doesn't look like anything they recognize. So they get the uh, crime scene crew out there very quickly because, again, you're in the desert. And there's a storm, sort of a sandstorm coming in. They want to get it before they lose their evidence. So while all of the crime scene guys are out there and, and they get the little girl taken care of, William Shallard, uh, this is the, the role he has. Uh, he is the uh, the ambulance uh, guy, the, the doctor that traveling with the ambulance. He's going to take the little girl into the nearby hospital, ride in with her. And Whitmore says, yeah, I want to be there when the little girl gets there. I, you know, if she starts talking, I definitely I definitely want to be there. And I realize, you know, everything's under, you know, well, well at hand. They've got, you know, the crime scene locked down. And uh, there's a store, a desert store up there, you know, like an old, old general store that's run by an old guy named Gramps. And Whitmore says, you know, uh, I should call him Ben Peterson. So Peterson says, hey, let's go up and check check out Gramps' store real quick and uh, and see what's going on there. And what they find is the same thing. The wall of one of the walls of the store is blown out. They find Gramps 30-06 with the barrel bent in half. I can't believe, what, what is this? He's nowhere to be found. The sugar all over the place. He had, he had these big barrels of sugar that were you know, just smashed. And, of course, the little ants were all over the place. They can't figure out what's going on. And then they find Gramps. They open up this uh, the, the door to the cellar, and there he is dead, as if he'd been thrown in. We find out his neck had been broken, his back had been broken, had severe lacerations, but he died... It could have been any one of those, but his autopsy shows that he was full of formic acid. Now, at this point, I mean, look, the movie was advertised as Big Ants, so we all know it's ants. At this point, you know, we're yelling at the screen, it's ants, come on, formic acid, that's ants. <laughs> but, you know, unless you were a science geek, you wouldn't know, you might not know that. So now they are, uh, they're mystified. Well, Peterson says, look, I want to get back to the hospital where the little girl's going to be in case she starts talking. Would you stay, you know, you know, we, we've called it in. There's another crew on the way here. Can you stay here with this and ride back with them? And she says, yeah, sure. Well, you know, this is a monster movie. Never do that. 
and it's night and there's a sandstorm and they keep hearing this weird noise. They heard it at the trailer and they also hear it here at the store. And it turns out to be the sound that the ants made. Now, the the Foley guy, just as a little trivia, they 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 made this sound from some specific tree frogs that made this weird sound. When I was a kid watching this movie, what it reminded me of was a squeaky fan belt in a car with, with some other additional uh, noises in there. But <laughs> So for years, I thought maybe they used like an old car with a squeaky fan belt and then just added a few noises to it. But that's That's not the case. So the partner gets killed, obviously. And of course, now Whitmore's got, you know, he's got a vendetta. But it leads us all, and I'm going to skip over a lot of scenes real quick here, like I usually do, because I want this one particularly is one of the most powerful scenes in the whole movie. They're at the hospital with the little girl. You've got Peterson there. By the way, we've been introduced now to James Arness, the FBI guy, and also the Medfords who have flown in. So they got the whole team now. A lot happens in between this, folks. Like I said, I'm not going to give you a play-by-play. They're at the hospital, and Medford, on a hunch, he sort of knows what this is, he thinks. And it's driving Peterson and uh, and Graham crazy because they're like, look, tell us. We're adults. You know, I'm an FBI agent. You know, Graham says, I'm an FBI agent. You can tell me. Edmund Gwen's Dr. Medford. I'd rather be sure because if I'm wrong and I don't tell you, then it's no problem. But if I'm right, then we're dealing with a very, very serious problem. So he had had them stop at a, at a drugstore before they got to the hospital. And what he had them get was formic acid. And he asked for a little little beaker, a little glass, pour some of the formic acid in it. You know, and the doctor there says, you know, this little girl played by, and the actress's name is Sandy Desher. And we're going to talk about a lot about her right, right now after this scene. Some kind of a jolt, maybe something could jolt her memory and get her out of this. But she's right now, you know, so traumatized by whatever happened. And by the way, at the trailer, way back when, Peterson had found a piece of a doll's head which matched the doll that the little girl was carrying that he picked up in the desert. And they found a shred, like a shard of cloth that matched up with her with her rope. So something happened there. She witnessed something at that trailer that absolutely terrorized her. But somehow the ants didn't get her. There were four other members of her family that they later found that the ants got. You know, just just the thought of a you know family on a you know, the family that the father was a was also an FBI agent on a two month vacation leave of absence, you know out there just having an enjoyable you know vacation and then to go through a horrific experience and death like that. So Medford he's he's waving this glass under the nose of the little girl and we see her start reacting a little bit. She blinks her eyes a little bit. All of a sudden. Eyes widen and she starts screaming, them, them. And she gets up and runs into a corner and it's just absolutely cowering and, and absolutely frantic. And folks, I got to tell you, and I think I did mention this back in episode 95 when we were talking about uh, them the first time, how powerful this scene was. You know, you know, I think it's sort of nat- natural for people if you see, you know, a little child crying or scared of something like that, it affects you. You, you, you. You've got an automatic instinct to want to protect that child. What this, what Sandy does in this is so amazing. I, I've never seen anything like it. It's still, I watched this movie yesterday. Yesterday. I have seen this movie so much I could almost quote it word for word, which I'm not going to do for this episode, I promise. It's still 
affects me. It still hits me right in the gut when she does it. It's like, it is such a powerful scene. I think it's one of the, one of the top scenes in any big bug film ever made. And for a little girl to pull that off, and I got to tell you about this, Sandy Drescher. She was discovered in Wyoming, in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. She was on vacation with her parents. And Gordon Douglas was shooting the film, The Charge of Feather River, one of the Westerns, that one of the few feature films that he shot. He was shooting nearby. He saw her in the lodge's dining room, and he asked the parents, he said, I've got a movie coming up that I would love to use her in. I think she'd be very good. And her parents said, no. They'd rather not. They're, they're, you know, they're traveling. But uh, Douglas said, at least take my card and give me a call when you get to California. Because he wanted to use her in the charge of the Feather River. But they didn't want to stay for when they, when they were going to need her. But they did take his card and they did call him. And guess what? Just in time for this film. And she is absolutely magnificent. And she acted for quite a while. Up until about 1967, she retired. She and her husband began managing a uh, store in Palm Springs called Michael's. It was a chain of stores. It was a, it was a chain that featured Hawaiian fashion and style that was owned by her parents, who had moved to Palm Springs that year. They moved to Palm Springs after they had lived in Hawaii for several years, where the other stores in the chain. You know, don't not be confused with the Michael's, which is a a, uh, a hobby store now. This was specific to this area, to California, to the Palm Springs area. And she, uh, she's still with us. And I don't know if they still have their business out there or not, but, uh, you know, ended up, she and her husband, you know, making their living off of, uh, off of this store, Michael's. But a magnificent performance. If, you know, I, I, I don't understand how somehow the Academy Awards couldn't have found something to give her for this. I don't know. You know, I haven't mentioned, I haven't talked about Joan Weldon. I need to talk about her real quick. Again, it just, I just mentioned that, that she was, uh, you know, basically the main female you're going to see in this movie. I did not know Joan Weldon when I saw this movie. She had not, uh, done anything that I had seen. She did a lot of westerns. Very pretty gal. And, uh, you know, just a very good, you know, you know, very good girl next door type look. Uh, did a ton of the westerns on television. So I may have seen her and not realized who she was. But she does a magnificent job on this. And the biggest problem she said she had, and she and Edmund Gwen both had doing this film, it was very brutal, shooting in the desert and uh, very hot. And all of her costumes were wool for the most part. And so Edmund Gwen's, his, his suits were all wool. Edmund Gwen also, I should mention, and I think I did mention this in the uh, in the first episode that I did on this movie, Suffered from uh, you know, severe arthritis to the point that when he he would do a scene, you wouldn't even realize. And watching this movie, you can't even tell that he's suffering from arthritis. But he, uh, you know, after after they say cut, and he he would have to be helped to his chair. Uh, he could barely walk, and you wouldn't know what a trooper this man was. What a trooper! And like I said, all of these main characters, and even even the minor characters, give incredible performances. Well, they figured out that it is now big ants. They search the desert. They find a nest. And the Medford say, look, we have got, we've got to get into the nest. We can't just destroy it. There's some things we need to know. So they, uh, they hit it with phosphorus around the rim to keep the ants in there because the ants would not come out in the heat of the day. They do all their foraging at night. And the 110 degree temperatures of the uh, desert would keep them underground. 
And then after they've got them underground there, then they would, uh, they, then they would uh, shoot uh, cyanide gas into the nest and, and get enough in there so that it would totally envelop all of the uh, tunnels in the ant colony. And then somebody would have to go in. And so Peterson and Graham are going to go in, and all of a sudden Joan Weldon's character, Pat Medford, she's there. And they're like, what are you doing? And she says, I've got to go. There are going to be some things that you don't know to look for. And I don't have time to give you a lesson on what to look for. And namely that she had to go in there and see if the queens were still there. And then they would destroy the nest. Well, they get there and they realize they're too late. And evidence that two queens had escaped. So they destroy that nest. You know, and again, the, you know, the, the military says, well, what's the big deal? They said, the big deal is if you think about how prolific ants are and what a queen is able, you know, how many uh, eggs a queen is able to, to lay and then, you know, setting up new nests and more queens. And within a year, we might not even exist anymore. We, it may be the extinction of humans from this planet. It's that serious. It could get out of control that quickly. So now they've got, you know, they've got all kinds of alerts out. They're still not telling the public. They don't want to panic the public. They said, oh, my God, can you imagine what we'd have to deal with if, you know, they would just be out of control? This is where we see Leonard Nimoy's character. He's reading a strange story out of Texas. And, yeah, this is one they're looking for, I bet you. It involved a uh, a robo car that got broken into and 40 tons of sugar disappeared. Yeah, I think that would sort of suggest maybe ants. And then we meet Fess Parker's character who sees, sees flying saucers and describes as ants. Now, before they, before they get to the point where they get to talk to Fess Parker, they get word that a ship at sea, the USS Milwaukee, reports giant ants. So the ants, when it was in harbor, getting, taking on provisions at a the nearby port before it went out onto, into the sea, Apparently some of the hatches, big hatches were left open. They were attractive to the three that were flying around because you always got the queen and the two consorts. They're winged drones that die right after the wedding night. Would have been attractive. And apparently uh, the queen was there. Would not have been seen by anybody because the, the crew was, you know, on, uh, on shore leave. She laid some eggs. They all hatched and boom, you've got ants out in the middle, you know. And this was another powerful scene I'll never forget when I saw this, uh, saw this movie. The, the helplessness of these guys on this ship, the guys, the guys on the tele, you know, he, he's on the, um, on the wireless trying to, you know, sending out SOS as fast as he can. And the, the, the guys, you know, trying to fight the, uh, the ants on, on, on the ship. Nowhere to go. I mean, where are you going to go? And you know, they weren't probably set up to be able to fight something like that. That's a scene that will always live with me. So when I think of this movie, I always think of that scene and the one with the little girl with, with Sandy Drescher. Screaming them, them into into the corner. So now there's only one they need to know, and and when they are find, and when they get to uh, Fess Parker where he's at in this in this mental ward, they get talking to him. He tells them, you know, where they're flying, what what direction they're flying, and it gives them a a lead on where to look. And so they they lay out a new location which includes Los Angeles, and they start, you know, still following strange uh, strange stories. And it leads him to a drunk in a drunk ward. And he's telling him about, you know, he says, oh, they're, you know, he keeps looking out the window. He says, oh, they're gone now. You know, when they're asking, have you seen anything strange since you've been here? Apparently, you know, he's a, he's a longtime resident of this alcoholic ward. He says, yeah, they're not, they're not here now. He says, I guess they usually, they usually just come out at night. And they're invested, what they're investigating is the disappearance of a father and his two sons 
And we find out the father had, you know, on Sunday mornings, early, early Sunday mornings, he would take them to the zoo. He would, he would, he'd make arrangements where the zoo would open early so he could take them there for pony rides or miniature golf or something like that. And it turns out they were flying model airplanes on this trip. Of course, the mother didn't know where they were going. But this drunk mentions, yeah, he says, I, I saw the little planes and I, I couldn't believe that they were big enough for those things to get in them. And they go, what are you talking about? And he says, the ants. And all of a sudden, bingo, the light goes off. And they go, my God, where? And they look out and they see the big openings, the big storm drain openings. If you've seen Terminator 2, you know what I'm talking about. You know, the big storm drains that are in uh, California. And they go, my God, that's where they're at. They, 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 they've set up another nest there. Got to be. And so now they get, you know, they've got 700 miles of storm drains under L.A. They call out the Army, National Guard, everybody, and they start getting all the entrances sealed off. And then they're going to, you know, coordinate in and see what they can find. And Peterson, in his Jeep, they hear a noise, gets everybody, he gets on the on the radio and says, everybody turn your engines off because it's really noisy in there. And he can hear something going on. And they look on the... Uh, Look on the map they've got, and it's an, it's an undeveloped area that's not finished yet. A sewer drain's not finished. And he says, hey, if they still have construction lights, turn them on so I can have some light. I'm going in because we think we've, we've heard something. Of course, the mother's, you know, hoping. They found the father. The father was all torn up uh, by his car, but the kids were missing, and they didn't find any evidence that the kids had been killed. So she's holding out hope that the kids may still be alive, as unbelievable as that may be. Whitmore finds the kids. He's able to, he, he goes in with a flamethrower. He sees some great military hardware in this movie. That's another thing that's known for. Uh, he gets the kids into the pipe that he came in and, and tells them, you know, go as fast as you can. You'll, you'll meet my partner on the other end and, uh, you know, get, get in the clear. Uh, but he has to take off his flamethrower in order to help the kids out. And then there's another ant that he missed coming up from behind him. And he doesn't have time to get to the flamethrower. He tries to get up into the pipe. And the ant gets him. You're going to hear what's known as the Wilhelm scream three times in this movie. And this first time, or the, uh, this time you hear it with, uh, you hear it once with the guys on the ship. Uh, you hear it again. It's a legendary scream. Anyone that's a film fan, I think probably everybody watching or listening to this uh, podcast knows what I'm talking about. They use it for, for James Whitmore's death. He gets crushed by the, uh, the mandibles of this big ant. But they have found the nest. And they go in. And to make a long story short, they find all of the queens are there. There's three queens. They still, the wings are still wet, which means that, you know, they have just hatched. And Pat goes, burn it all. And they burn it all up. And then they ask, you know, Harold Medford, you know, the father, is this it? Did we get them all? And he goes, I don't know. Here's the little message. He says, you know, with all, you know, all that we're doing radiation and nuclear stuff, and there's no telling what we're going to find down the road. Like I said, folks, this set the table for radioactive big bugs and radioactive all kinds of monsters that we would see in the 50s. And from this point on, virtually every film that came out in the 50s had some kind of tie-in or message about the dangers of radioactivity and, and nuclear power. But this one started it off. Folks, it is hard for me to believe that this movie is 70 years old. It is still so much fun. And if you're listening to this podcast and have never seen them, for some reason you've not seen it, and there may be somebody out here listening that hasn't seen it yet, watch this movie. Or if you're parents and you're introducing your kids to monster movies and you haven't seen this one with them yet, 
may I recommend that you do that. It's a good one to break them in on. It still plays well. You know, even though it was made 70 years ago, it could play just as well today. And you know what, folks? What has gone through my mind year after year after year that I've seen this movie is with Hollywood seemingly remaking all kinds of movies from the past, why has this one never been remade? There's a side of me that says, well, I'm sort of glad it hasn't because if it was made like for a TV movie or something, I think it would be, you know, cheap and chintzy. But last year, it was announced that Michael Grashino, he's, he's the musician who's done a lot of scoring for contemporary films. The one that he's probably best known for me is the remake of Star Trek in 2009. But he has done so many other films. An incredible musician. I love what he does. It was announced that a remake of this film with Michael Grishino making his directorial debut will happen for Warner Brothers. A remake of them. I'll see if, how much more information I can find on it. As far as I know, that is still in development. Now, I don't know. You, you, you know, this, this, this film, the new film would have a lot of CGI to it for the ants. It would be the easiest way to do the ants. I don't know how that's going to play. But I hope Michael really gives it some thought and sees what made this film work to bring into a contemporary take on them. And I'm sure they decided to, to do it because it's celebrating its 70th anniversary. So hopefully sometime this year we may see an announcement concerning the remake of them. And again, as, as soon as I find out something, you'll be the first to know. 1954, them. Mom and Dad, this is for you. With all my thanks and gratitude for the gift you gave me so many years ago. What an incredible film. And folks, next week, we celebrate 400th episode of Monster Attack. I got to tell you, folks, there were some times along the way I never knew if we would ever make it this far. Times during season one, I began, wondered. And then, of course, we had the whole the whole disaster of losing the studio for three months and having to get a new, you know, get set up in a new studio, which I thought, Oh boy, that could sink us. But you guys kept us alive. You, you supported us. You always believed in us and we always believed in you. So folks, next week, a very special episode of monster attack episode number 400. Have a great week and we will see you next Monday. Attention, people of Earth! Looking for a way to kill half an hour every week? Try the Flopcast! It's a silly podcast about cartoons, music, comics, movies, obscure pop culture from the 70s and 80s, and chickens. Join us! Bring coffee! We're on the ESO Network. And we're at Flopcast.net. This has been a broadcast of the ESO Network. Be part of the crew and help support our shows by donating to our ESO Patreon or by shopping for the Tee Public Store, which can all be found at www.esonetwork.com. The ESO Network, 
your station for all things geek.